This episode is brought to you by Major Spoilers VIP members. VIP stands for very important people, and their small monthly contributions ensure that this podcast remains free for all of you. If you would like to become a bronze, silver, or gold VIP member, go to members.majorspoilers.com for more information. I sure do thank you for your support. Now, here's your show. The Major Spoilers podcast covers news, reviews, and of course spoilers, and goes into detail about the topics discussed. So, if you haven't read, listened, or watched the items they talk about, you might want to come back later. I'm Matthew. I'm Zach. I'm Rodrigo. And I'm Stephen, and you're listening to the Major Spoilers Podcast, the podcast for pop culture and comic fans. In this issue, time, space, dimension, and the mysteries of the unknown, chrononauts, ufologies, or resident aliens, and the first rule of Fight Club is don't urinate in the hot tub. I think I got that right. Anyway, plans go awry for Archie Comics' nerd rooms of doom, and Dr. Peter Coogan returns to explain why the opposite of hero may not be exactly what you think. So settle down, grab your favorite snack, put on your safety goggles, and prepare to repair, because the Major Spoilers podcast is on the air. Welcome to issue 625 of the Major Spoilers podcast. Thank you for downloading. Thank you for sharing this episode with a friend. Yes, you heard that right. Dr. Peter Coogan returns a little bit later in the show. And uh, you know what? This one was a lot easier to to handle and deal it with was. than the the last time he was here. At least the last time but, ended with a, a you know positive, upbeat message. This one. Yeah. You know, the first thing I asked him this week was, what are you going to ruin for me this week, Dr. Pete? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Nazis later in uh, the podcast. Ah. Yeah. So, oh, no. Uh, he ruins Nazis. Well, he doesn't ruin, but uh, <laughs> puts a spin on them in their relationship oh, with superheroes. Okay. So oh, okay. uh, you want to stick around for that. Paleozoic Wolf, what have I told you about being funnier than me and Stephen? So uh, <laughs> last week we had a very long discussion about Archie Comics and Kickstarter. And yes. apparently there was a lot of discussion going on, so much so that Archie felt like it was detracting from what they were trying to do. Oh, did they give a reason? And they basically said, hey, we're just trying to get these comic books. And this is me paraphrasing here. We're just trying to get these comic books out into your hands a lot faster. So that's why we went to Kickstarter. But the the discussion has moved away from us trying to get comic books into your hands and more about the Kickstarter campaign. They and, yeah. and they basically said, uh, we believe we would have reached our goal, but that's not uh, you know what's going on. So we're canceling it. There's a big, long, multi-paragraph uh reasoning from john goldwater over at archie comics i just mm-hmm. think that they were tired of hearing people's crap uh, i mean it makes well, sense I, I think there may be a little bit more to it than that i think it's something where they got feedback that they weren't expecting and i think that they responded to that feedback in a way that well, at least from there end, was positive a lot of what i was worried about was the same thing that i kept hearing people kind of haranguing them about and i think that yeah, there were some very angry voices and there were some people who were, you know, intentionally going, why would you even do this? You're stupid. But yeah, I, I feel like this is actually a, pl- a pretty classy response from Archie and Goldwater. Oh, sure. Yeah. To a difficult situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This was this was in a lot of ways the correct response to yeah. the negative feedback because they go, hey, all we care about is the comics. If you guys don't like what we're doing, that's fine. All we care about is the comics. We'll stop doing it. Mm-hmm. It makes them look good, and it makes you look bad for not talking about the comics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it, and it, 
and also they were getting some flack from comic book stores, comic book retailers, mm-hmm. uh, because the retailers were essentially saying, well, by doing this and letting people buy the or not really buy the comics, but contribute to the Kickstarter and get the comic in return, you're bypassing the local comic shop. Mm. And Which I don't. Yeah, well, they would be because if I'm a big fan of Archie, I could wait until the books eventually come out, which was the goal all along. Is the uh-huh. books are still going to come out eventually, mm-hmm. but not on the rapid scale that they were hoping to with this Kickstarter campaign. Right. But so if I wanted it, I could uh, go down to my local comic book shop and order it, and hope that the comic book shop actually listens to me this time and mm-hmm. orders a copy, uh, <laughs> and hope that nobody else you know takes my copies before I get there. Um, right. Or I could subscribe to this Kickstarter and get this copy get without having to go mm-hmm. to my LCS. And I sure. think a lot of local comic shops were upset about that, uh, very much in the same vein that they're upset about digital comics and how it takes away from their potential business. Yeah, and there right. was uh, a lot I ended up reading after our conversation because apparently I was oblivious to a lot of it. Um, and I know uh, John Goldwater, right? Right. Um, mm-hmm. He did an interview with uh, CBR, yeah, CBR. Mm-hmm. Uh, which was which – was, Good. It was after everyone had started, uh, really started criticizing the uh, campaign, and so he addressed some, some, and he addressed some of the stuff they uh, at CBR were complaining about. And so it was interesting to see, uh, like a, a president of a company, like, okay, well, let's really do this because people are really upset about us. Um, but uh, yeah, it was interesting. I was kind of shocked that they pulled it, but it does seem, uh like the best move for them pr wise mm-hmm. i know uh you know a lot of people were talking about it on twitter and uh scott kurtz said there's no way archie would have pulled this even with the flack if they thought they were actually going to raise the money to get it that's what a lot of other people have said i, I mean i think at by wednesday or thursday they had hit i want to say like 17 or twenty thousand dollars of their three hundred and fifty thousand dollar goal yeah uh, and the the campaign had just kicked off last Monday, so you know they were just barely a week into it of a three hundred and fifty thousand. They still had another twenty days to to go. They may have seen that you know they didn't make they didn't do what Atomic Robo has done and yeah, blown sure. blown their goal out of the water within w- twelve hours. I wonder though what standard Kickstarter growth is like because you only ever hear about the wild successes, right? Yeah. It's like, right. oh yeah, this thing it made it, they wanted three hundred thousand dollars and then made fifty million dollars within ten seconds. Yeah, you I hear, feel you like you hear about those, but you can go yeah. and find. I think uh, if I remember the last data that I saw, it was like sixty four percent of all Kickstarter campaigns fail. So there are more right. ca- campaigns that fail than than succeed. And, and mm-hmm. I think with the the trends of giving in in especially like ones that are like, oh, there's three hours left. Are we gonna make it? Yes, for it people seems... who have watched uh, the season two of uh, of uh, Silicon Valley, <laughs> have seen that play. Oh, I haven't seen that yet. Yeah, yeah. Um, but if, if if you watch a lot of stuff, it seems like huge surge at the beginning. If they won't get their goal, right? And so then they slowly creep up, mm-hmm. and then the last you know two days, twenty four hours, do like half of what they made in that first thing, and then that's what pushes them over. So it seems right. like if you slow crawl it, you get there. Yeah towards the end but you make a majority chunk yeah like early right on. early mm-hmm. on. Sure, sure the uh according to the kickstarter website uh successfully funded projects to date eighty-five thousand, just over eighty-five thousand projects have been funded 138,000 almost 139,000 projects have unsuccessfully funded oh well so it's it's a pretty wide gap there uh, between I, those I, that have succeeded and those that, that have failed 
I don't know if I see a lot of merit to the theory that they did this for press and that they expected it to fail. No, 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 oh, I don't no. Think, no, 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 no one's saying okay. that. I, what what Rodrigo is saying and I, and what uh, Rodri- uh, Zach is echoing is that they looked at five days later or three days later and they're like, based on these projections, we're not going to hit three hundred fifty thousand dollars. Everyone's oh, complaining. Okay. Why don't we just yank it? Yeah, and that, that say that the that conversation. Yeah, and that the conversation had moved beyond the campaign to something else, and it. As Rodrigo says, okay. it's a good PR move for them yeah, because they were able to save face in the in the process. Yep. But I think what Rodrigo was talking about last week, I think he's right that this is going to be the norm. And we've yeah. talked about that this is going to happen. And Archie was right in a lot of their stuff talking about canceling it and the interview with CBR. Like, we are the company that's pushing stuff yep. forward. Yeah, yep. you guys don't like it all the time, but we're the ones doing it. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, a year when, from now, five years from now. You know, DC Comics is going to go. Oh to no, I think they. I think they will. I think what yeah. we'll see is, and everybody will be okay with it. Well, yeah. the area that DC will go to first, and and to an extent, uh, Mattel has already done this with their Maddie Collector uh, system, where they used to have oh, this thing yeah. where, hey, look, we have all these He-Man figures, or we have all these right. uh, DC figures that we want to produce. In order for us to produce these, we have to have commitments from you to fund this level and they'll push it and they run it almost like a Kickstarter campaign, uh-huh. but it runs through their site. If DC does something like this, it won't be their comic books first. It'll be their merchandise stuff first sure. that they run mm-hmm. through some kind of a Kickstarter campaign. Oh, you want this, uh, you want this, uh, replica of the flash ring? Well, we would do it if we can get 50,000 of you to sign up in advance for it. You think it's kind of going to go merch and then maybe like you think, I think the logical stuff for DC after that would probably be like their earth, one book, so where oh, they no, do no. those Batman, well, those like hardcover trades, maybe those sell really, really get well. Into so the single issues after that, I, I would say if if they were going to do it in any way, it would be merch first, Vertigo Comics second, mm. uh, some of their titles from mm. Vertigo, uh, mostly trades. Although there's a good indicator that trades are probably going to be a better seller for them anyway, that they wouldn't have to do it. But there would be some low running Vertigo title that everyone's a fan of. A good example would have been like the upcoming uh, Fables ending. Mm-hmm. Where they, mm-hmm. where it's basically, it's a trade paperback sized volume. It's yeah. like, this is going to cost us a lot of money. If you guys want this bonus sized thing, we can give it to you, but it's going to, we need these many people to sign up in advance. Um, depending on how your LCS though works, Matthew, um, mm-hmm. that's kind of what your monthly solicitations are, right? We're, we're to gonna, some degree. Yeah. I mean, it basically, you set your pre-order two months in advance. I think. And there have bo- been books that, you know, uh, comic book mm-hmm. publishers have turned around later and said this book has been canceled because of low solicitations or it's going oh, yeah, to be rescheduled for another date uh, because or of low in orders. in the case of like every other Rob Liefeld title, it gets successfully ordered and then doesn't get done anyway. That was a cheap shot. I don't feel good about that. I'm sorry. But yeah, it to some degree, yes. But I think it's more of a – well, actually, it really kind of is the same thing. And I guess that if you're looking at it from that targeted nature of – Hey, if you want to see the next issue of X Mutants, or if you want to see oh, a, a six-issue yeah. run of X Mutants from Ron Lim, yeah, with Ron Lim and and art by Adam Hughes, yeah. If you want, if you want that six-issue run, then you're willing to kick in Take X amount money here. now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do you think when this inevitably happens, do you think it's going to be property power that propels it forward or will be creator because i mean we've already seen they have some huge creators I, on this archie thing and I, I think yeah and i think part of the thing that got a lot of people excited about the archie was the fact that chip zadarsky adam hughes um who was uh on uh, kevin keller the you know the ongoing Jay Bone kevin, and yeah the ben parent yeah the kevin keller series was going on so i think a lot of it was the star power and i think it, 
you know, Image Comics does a really good job right now of bringing in independent or independent titles from well-known creators who may be working at DC or Marvel not under a non-exclusive contract or in some cases an exclusive contract. And they're just like, okay, well, here's how we're going to run it based on sales and how much money you get and how much money we get. I could see a time where DC or Marvel says, hey, we have – I don't know who's who's an exclusive. Bendis, is he still under exclusive with? I think Bendis is at Marvel, yeah. So you know, sure. Bendis wants to do this crazy comic that we're not thrilled about. But uh, you know, fans, if you guys want to support this Kickstarter that we're doing, we'll go ahead and publish it. Here at Marvel Comics, we hate this idea, but that doesn't mean we won't yeah. do it anyway. But I mean, that's—I mean—they're going to spin it, spin it sure, differently. Sure. But essentially, it's going to be: eh, this is something that's risky for us to do. Right. Right. Let's judge, and really, Kickstarter is a great judge of interest on a project. If it succeeds, it tells you a lot about the project. How much it succeeds tells you a lot about the project. How much it fails by tells you a lot about the project, and whether they cancel the project ongoing. Tells you a lot about what public's reaction is to this. I I think Archie is on the right track. I really yeah. do. I I I'm sorry that they canceled their their Kickstarter. I can understand their reasoning why to an extent, but um, you know nobody wants to fail and fail big. Um, but um, I I think that we're going to just see anybody and everybody use Kickstarter, and I don't care whether it's Coca Cola or whether it's uh, you know T Bone Steakhouse wanting to do a Kickstarter campaign. Sure. I think, though, to specifically address Zach's question, at least early on in the game, I believe that it's going to be creator-driven, and I think it's oh, going yeah. to be properties that people are unsure of. I mean, Marvel is not going to have any compunction about throwing money behind you know, a new, I don't know, Deadpool series drawn by, let's say, John Byrne. People like Rob John Liefeld. Byrne. Rob Liefeld. God, no. Somebody who can draw. Hmm. Written by Rob Liefeld. Drawn by Gail Simone. Um, but... I think that if we have, say, you know, you're Rob Liefeld, your big name, we'll use Rob as a big name, who comes in and he wants to do this whole new thing with a whole new character in a strange new world, that's the point where you're going to want to gauge your interest and kind of test the water and say, Kickstarter, we've got this awesome idea from Rob. You love Rob, right? What are you willing to, you know, kick in and help us and make sure that this will be a success for Rob? I think that that's where we're going to start. In those situations... Why would the creator go through a major publisher then? Why wouldn't they just do it on their own, like Gail Simone with leaving Megalopolis? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think... It's a headache and hassle, right? I mean, that's kind of the nice thing. And, of course, you know, there's all these companies that have sprung up that are essentially fulfillment companies to help you fulfill your your needs. Um, I know that there have been comic ones that I have funded and successfully funded. In the case of uh, Megalopolis, it took a while for me to get mine. Sure. And, oh, yeah. and that if you're going through a distributor the, yeah. or like Diamond, Diamond should get on board with this pretty quick. But um, if you're going through a publisher and a distributor, that makes the, the process a little little smoother. There's a Kickstarter that is, let's see, is it funded yet? Yeah. Oh, no, it's not. It's got three days to go. It's got 754 backers. This is the Broken Frontier Anthology. And it's got um, – who are all the creators on this? They've got uh, David Lewis, Adam uh, Mortimer, Allison Simpson – uh, Box Brown, Carla, the Cullen Brown, uh, Bun, uh, Daniel Warren Johnson, David Hine. Uh, the list goes on and on. Fred Van Lente. They're all contributing to this to this project, and it's a very worthwhile project. It's got a lot of creators doing a lot of cr- cool work on this. They've got three days to go. They're 
just over the halfway point to their goal. They need $58,000 to make this happen. They've got three days to go, and they've got $33,000 raised. So they need just over $25,000 to make this happen. I, you know, I think this is worthwhile, but I mean, if you had a, I don't know, I don't know what would make this, what would make this work or not. Um, But it's something that people are like, hey, where's a high profile comic project that's not coming out of a, out of a a major publisher? Well, here's Broken Frontier. And I don't know Tyler and Wendy Chin Tanner, but, um, you know, I hope they, I hope they make their, make their goal in the next three days. You know, so it's just, it's really it's hard to know what people are going to back and what people aren't going to back. Sure. Mm-hmm. This is kind of the wild frontier right now. Eventually, someday, there will be clear and obvious guidelines about how to do crowdfunding. But they are being written right now oh, and, on you know, top of us. Mm-hmm. We're, we're doing that, too, an extent of what we're doing with our VIP site at members.majorspoilers.com. We are crowdfunding. Mm-hmm. We aren't going through an organization like Kickstarter. We're not going through Patreon. Because they're taking chunks of that. Yep. And, you know, when people go through our campaign, uh, we're able to use more of that money to fund more of the things that we need to get done. Um, so, I, you know, I don't know if there will ever be, you know, a cookie cutter, follow this, this, this and this and you will be you will succeed. I think the ones that that succeed and succeed hard are ones that um, have a good social media presence um, that that the fans are really going to support right and that have a good re- good reward levels the the atomic robo one like i said they blew that out of the water in like 12 hours they had mm-hmm. surpassed their uh surpassed their goal it's the new it's the reprint one did we talk about this last week zach uh no i think i don't think so they needed seventy thousand dollars they're now they're 80 bucks away from a hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars and the campaign has been going on for a week and a half now And people just keep funding it and keep funding it and keep funding it, even though, and this is the weird thing, Atomic Robo is considered a very small circulated book. Sure. It does, I don't remember if it ever, if Red 5 Comics ever had the circulation numbers above like an Archie Comics, Mm -hmm. but to see them succeed so quickly is somewhat telling too. Yeah, uh, and it's, it is interesting. And that's actually kind of uh, a reason why I... I disagree with Matthew's point that it will likely be creator-driven. And granted, Atomic Robo and its creators are one thing. Right, right, right. right. It's, a, it's a creator-owned project. Um, but I think because of that uh, fan base for the character, that helps. And I think that you know Marvel might do something like, well, our market research shows that there are exactly 10 wealthy people that, are in it that really like Fool Killer. So we're yeah, going to yeah, yeah. launch that through Kickstarter. We know nobody else wants that, but we know it's going to get funded. Yeah. Yeah. It would be know. interesting. I mean, if they if one of the big publishers really wants to get into this or any company really, if they can see cuz they can see the benefits of it, right? Cuz it's like, oh, if we can get people to fund our books, the upfront cost for us is less and then we still push out the book and we make a profit and everyone gets sure. you know, people happy. still buy the book. Yeah, so if you do a if you took a, a I don't know, even like a lower or like a second tier character. I don't even know. Like just like a pick an X Men that people that watch the movies know. Maggot. Like, like, oh, no, not people that watch the movies. Oh, yeah, no. you know, just anyone like that. And you do a Kickstarter, 
right? Because you're just trying to lay this base of, we know this is going to be profitable for us in the long run, but we mm-hmm. have to figure out a way for it to launch heavy. You lowball your goal. Yes. You lowball mm-hmm. it, make it just go through the roof. You establish people want their stuff through Kickstarter, and then you just ride that out, and you start doing your lower stuff, and then you can, you know... You just lay that base of people want well, and will fund it like this. And, which, which and, the, faster that it, and, and the faster that it funds. And, and again, yeah. Atomic Robo only needed $70,000 to reprint these books. They blow that out of the water in 12 hours with some great goals. Suddenly everyone's like, oh, these guys blew it out of the water in 12. Oh, yeah, I want to kick into yeah. this too. And then it, it grows and, and exceeds. The, it would be really interesting. And maybe I'll try to set up a, a panel here in um, a couple of months. I, I would really love to get uh, Brian Ibbett. Uh, who runs Coverville, that podcast. He's had many successful Kickstarter campaigns. Uh, Corinne Lewis, who basically is the uh, the mind behind the Nerdtacular show. And maybe even get um, uh, the uh, the guys over at Tesladyne, over at Atomic Robo, to come on and talk about why they work and, and why it doesn't work for them. Mm-hmm. And just get some, some really good feedback from those guys on successfully running these kinds of campaigns. So... Uh, okay, well, there are, is a follow-up from last week's Archie Talk, uh, and that's about all the time we have for news. So why don't we just jump right into some reviews? And it seems more – it seems like longer than a month ago that I read uh, Ufology Number 1 from Ufology, uh, Boom Studios. Mm-hmm. It's and um, the second issue comes out this week from Boom Studios, and I it, it really kind of – I kind of forgotten everything that had happened in there. Oh, no. <laughs> Which is, I mean, and I don't know if that's because we were reading all this uh, convergence stuff between the last time and that we did this yeah, and this, or if there's been longer than a month between uh, issues. Yeah, didn't between Matthew and you, didn't you read 47 convergence something books like that. this yeah, past yeah. week? Yeah, something 36, like that. 52. So uh, last time, some crazy stuff went down at, a, at an empty house. Uh, uh, Becky and Malcolm went there to go look for some, you know, uh, what is it? The the uh, swamp gas lights, and uh, what they did is they found a body and a fire. And Becky wound up in the hospital. She now has this weird spiral mark on the side of her face. And Malcolm is kind of just kind of hanging around in the background, but he kind of starts hearing a lot of the grownups in town talking about, "Oh yeah, does this sound like the thing that happened the last time? You know what happened the last time?" Oh, I don't even remember what happened the last time. And so Malcolm's starting to piece together that there may be an even bigger conspiracy going on than what um, than what the town folk are led to believe. We also find that uh, Malcolm's dad is just raging on like LSD and mushrooms and, and all these other things because he's like, oh, yeah, tonight uh, you mean my kid's not at school today? And the town sheriff is like, it's it's Sunday, dude. Lay off the lay off the uh, the drugs. Um so there's the interesting conspiracy part going on, and then we have last time this mysterious um, grouping of of somethings, you know, this uh, like cryogenic chamber getting ready to open up, and we start to see the introduction of whoever or whatever this military thing that emerges from the uh, cryo chamber is, and what his role is in this. Uh, I still like the story. Uh, I do like the art. It's a little bit different by uh, Matthew Fox. But it's a it's a good book, and I enjoyed the first issue. I enjoyed the second issue. This is a six issue miniseries. I'm giving Ufology number two uh, four out of five slices of meatloaf. Ufology. Uh, Matthew, what do you have this week? I have the much awaited, uh, much uh, heralded Fight Club two number one, written by Chuck Palahniuk, uh, drawn by uh, that dude. 
Cameron Stewart. Cameron Stewart. Yeah, it's pronounced Cameron Stewart. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. I, I had problems. Your face was over the part of the book that told me who drew it, and I had to turn my Skype down. I was trying to cover for that, but that's okay. We don't, you know. Fight Club 2, number one. Ten years later, the story of our nameless narrator, and uh, now he calls himself Sebastian, by the way. This, first of all, is rough. This is a tough story. This is the kind of story that will knock you down and steal your lunch money. And as such, I don't know that I've really fully processed it yet because the movie Fight Club was one of those things that kind of slowly grew on me. The first time I saw it, couldn't stand it. I thought it was awful. And then I saw it again and I'm like, well, I didn't notice that the first time. And then I saw it again and I went, okay, that's brilliant. And it slowly built up to where I have a really, really high appreciation of that film. Um, but basically, 10 years later, Sebastian, who is not, by the way, drawn like Edward Norton, kind of a shame, but what are you going to do, is living a life in the suburbs, uh, highly medicated, with his wife, Marla, and their son. That's really the part where things start getting really kind of rough. Um, it's hard to process this all at once. The son is up to some really weird stuff. Marla is up to her old tricks. And as you go through this story, everything that you kind of expect about the character turns out to be really, really wrong and kind of a facade, which if you've seen the movie or if you've read the first Fight Club novel, you kind of understand how that works. There are different experiences, by the way, if you do it. I don't know if you love the movie, if you're going to like the novel. Really black humor, but some really excellent art and some really terrible moments. <laughs> There's a particular line of the movie involving grade school that I know many people who've seen the film recognize. That sense of humor is here. And as we get to the end of the film, we discover a terrifying truth about the end of that movie, which is really fascinating. And I do not want to spoiler this for you because come on, you know, the whole point is not spoilers, but I think I liked this. I, I, I feel like the, the thing that's really interesting is there are certain parts of the art that are obscured by portions of Sebastian's life, which kind of breaks that, that fourth wall. There's a point where he's in the middle of a conversation where he's heavily medicated and Cameron Stewart has drawn the page normally and there are pills looking as though they're lying on the page over the panels, obscuring part of the actual motion of the book. The same thing happens later with some uh, rose petals when they're starting to try and celebrate their anniversary. And if you looked at the, the movie version of Fight Club as that character as a 20-something breaking out of the weird 20-something life, this does sort of the same thing for 30-somethings living in the suburbs with their kids. And that's about as far as I want to go into the plot part of it that could ruin everything for you. Just suffice to say there are two really, really important scenes that you want to watch for. And much like both the movie and the novel, it gets you when you don't expect it. It has a real bite at the end. Three and a half slices of meatloaf. I do recommend this one. I don't know if I liked it, but I want you to read it and tell me if you think you liked it. And I'd like to start some discussion on this one, gentlemen, because... This one is really my, – my grandfather had a phrase, and it's a little bit colorful, uh, but this is a story that will knock your dingus in the dirt. Uh, I'm paraphrasing. 
So three and a half slices of meatloaf. I seriously, read it next week. We'll come back together. We'll have a whole book club thing. It'll be spiffy. Yeah, no, we got something else planned next week, actually. Uh, but oh. the, the thing to keep in mind is that um, the author of this comic, the writer of this comic, this is the official sequel to yes. the Fight Club uh, novel. Um, yep. The author that, of this co- club, or this is the author of the novel. Yeah, in, in that they're, you know, this is not being adaptation a, adapted from another source into comics. This is straight to comic books. Wow. So that this tells you something, This is the story too. that he wants to tell. So hopefully, and I believe this is a 10-issue finite series. Yeah, it's a short series. Either 10 or 11. Yeah. So we'll and see how this all shakes it, down. It, I, I'm not sure it will, will be finite. I mean, the mini, the series well, is, this this series is finite. This story has an ending, right? But um, at Comic-Con last year, he was on stage and he said that this will, this might turn into a series where series. he's taking a look at the main character every 10 years. Mm-hmm. So that could be interesting too. So there so you in go. the year 2025, yep. if man is still alive, yep, we'll get more Fight Club. Oh man, we got some more trippy alien stuff this week, Rodrigo. Uh, well, this actually isn't so trippy. Well, there's some trippy alien weirdness in uh, Resident Alien, and it's really the trippiest thing about Resident Alien is how mundane it is. Yeah, because he lives out in the Midwest, right? Right. Uh, so I've I've reviewed this uh, b- uh, before. This is, I believe, the third volume of Resident Alien, issue one of the third volume uh, called uh, the Sam Hain Mystery, and um, I believe it's pronounced Sawan. Um, it's not because uh, in the book, okay. they yeah, it's a character who's specifically oh. named Sam Hain. Um, and they actually mentioned that in the book that it's like, oh, did you know that this is a play on words? And then the alien who's like super smart is like, yes, but it's pronounced differently. Like exactly. <laughs> basically that, that exchange we just had is actually in this book. The but actually. Yeah. Oh, man. Now I feel um, bad. That's fine. Uh, but, uh, basically again, this being the third volume, all you get about, the story so far is this little blurb at the beginning, which is actually kind of an only a slightly larger font than the legal mm-hmm. stuff for the comic, where it's like, you know, the creator and who's publishing it and the years and copyright and all that stuff. So it's very easy to miss. So I would love to show this comic to someone and have them start reading it because there's one alien in this book. He's purple and he has pointy ears. Yeah. And Everybody interacts with him like he's a perfectly normal person. If you've been reading the book, you know that he has uh, psychic powers and can obscure his alienness from other people, except for a handful of people who can see him as he is, who he quickly befriends. Um, But, uh, yeah, it's like super weird because he's a doctor. Um, This issue in particular, as opposed to the previous... um, like starts of each volume is even more mundane because at the start of each of the other volumes um there's like all of a sudden a murder mystery and in this one he just by the end of it he finds a mysterious suitcase and we only find out something that has to do with the sam hain character from a book that exists inside the universe and the blurb at the beginning tells us that this leads to a murder mystery, but we actually haven't gone to the murder mystery part yet. So this is actually, this issue is a story about a doctor who takes a long lunch to investigate 
to go find a book and then find like his favorite author who lives nearby and then goes back to work and then finds a mysterious and then finds like a weird suitcase inside his yeah, yeah. uh um inside his uh practice or whatever mm-hmm. um or in his office and and that doctor just happens to be a space alien but it doesn't matter because nobody treats him like a space alien <laughs> so it's like this is just such a weirdly mundane book starring a purple alien and i kind of love that um the i will say that unlike the previous uh openings of the volume this one's a little slower and i'm that one, i'm not necessarily crazy about um the art is great all the character designs are very distinct um he lives in a small town um and uh it's full of colorful and weird characters but colorful and weird again in a very subdued normal way like um bushy mustache guy with a ponytail and like the mayor who dresses like he's straight out of the 70s like yeah, he yeah. just never changed yeah. his style from the 70s and you know that sort of thing um again the sort of guys that you expect to find today in a perfectly normal small town that's what you find in resident alien it's so weird it's such a weird combination of things um and it is i I don't know i just find it to be a lot of fun again this story starts pretty slow um if this was the first i was reading of resident alien i don't know that i would keep reading i know that it having read previous volumes I know this is a very satisfying book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it has been. So I'm willing to give it a lot more leeway, even though the start is extra slow. Um, so I'm going to give this one uh, three and a half slices of meatloaf. I look forward to the next issue. Um, I probably could figure out what's happening. Cause, well, I, actually, I don't know if uh, Resident Alien is still on Dark Horse Presents, but I know for a long time oh, it yeah, was one yeah, of the stories they were serializing in it. it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I don't know. I have to look. Cool. Thank you, Rodrigo. Yep. And finally, you, Mr. Zach. Yes. What are you bringing me. to the table this week? Uh, I am bringing Chrononauts number three. Oh, thank goodness you're reading that because I just ran out of time. Yes. To get to that, yeah. I am reading it. Uh, I saw what you did there. Yeah. <laughs> and I am here to tell you, I am done ringing, reading the single issues of this. And I think I think all only the one other more mar- issue to go is there. I think so. <laughs> if the last, the next issue is the final issue in the arc, then I will read it. <laughs> but at this point, I think I am done reading single issues of Mark Miller work, which is sad because I only started reading single issues of Mark Miller work in the last three months. Mm. But you why, know why? Why is well, why you are know, you done I, reading I, I the had, single issues? I had that because weird... you can't wait until the second next one. No, because I feel like that you know we read a comic and like they're good. They should be good individually. Yes. Individually, they should have this narrative arc that and they string together in this long, uh, you know, couple issues, and they give you this full story. In these, this issue, uh, and just like the last Jupiter's uh, Circle issue I reviewed, it doesn't have an arc. It just takes up from the last panel and then just mm-hmm. continues on this upward streak with no valley. Like this, this issue is like a like a 20 minute sequence of Mad Max Fury Road it is just a chase through time that never stops with no character development 
it's just oh you know those people were going to chase you at the end of the last issue issue they're just chasing you the whole time and there's no stopping and there's some plot inconsistencies of they have their suits uh they disband their suits because they're being tracked and like oh we'll just go to london except in their time in london they're like in the 1800s and where they're at at that point they stopped was in the 1500s so there were some inconsistencies of that but just the idea of we're just gonna run this entire issue like oh this would be great if i was flipping through this at hyperspeed between issues of plot points mm-hmm. but I just got the issue of like it's not bad. Like it was still the fun sense of chrononauts that we've got since the beginning of these two guys just jumping around time and you know getting to all sorts of cool stuff. But now they're getting in trouble, and that that still was there. And so I like the overall idea of chrononauts, and that's why I'm still like gung ho to read more of it. But this issue was like this as a single issue. Like this was not a successful like storytelling attempt for the larger picture that is chrononauts it was just panels we jump in through all the four different time zones we're yeah. jumping all over the place there's cars shoots bang boom 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 it's done and it was like uh, it, uh, i don't know it just left me completely underwhelmed story wise but still want to read more because i think his idea is good Yep, you've only got one more issue. This is a one four. More. This is a four issue miniseries this time, and then uh, uh, Millar and um, bah, 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 Sean Murphy said that they may have some plans for at least two more miniseries based on these these characters. Oh, what seriously? Like that's really, and I don't even know because it feels like <laughs> to get a really coherent, good story put together, like this needs more issues, or at least another arc of following right after this. Otherwise it feels like a super long movie pitch. Yeah. Well, he got what he wanted, right? I mean, right after the first issue came out, universal, I think it was universal picked it up to do a a movie out of it. So, wow. But now that I, because I didn't know, I would assume this is probably six issues or something. This is over in one issue. Like, Oh, this, this issue really sucked then because it didn't advance it besides, I guess final bad thing's going to end, but to, oh, that, or no, that really, because <laughs> it really does feel like they stretched out a two-page movie pitch into four issues of a comic now. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I mean, that's a common complaint that I have about Miller's story. Yeah, yeah. Not only do you have, you know, those moments where it's a great setup and then it kind of is like we're saving the best stuff for the adaptation, the issues end up just feeling like the story was 57 pages long and they carved out a chunk of that story without any transition, you know, for the issue. So mm. it's a, it's something that does happen. It's, it's frustrating. It is for for this to be a full on, uh, this is Mark Miller, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. A full on Mark Miller disappointment. He needs to have uh, the, everybody flipping you off. Yeah, at, the the, end. at the end of the last <laughs> issue, the main character needs to make you feel bad about the way you live your life. About yourself, yeah. Yep. You're all bastards. And well, I why are you reading a comic? You should be <laughs> out like, doing out something. Yeah, get outside. Get some sun. Yep. Also, there should be an inexplicable sex scene and somebody getting decapitated. I think there have been that uh, already. Both things have already yeah. happened. Yep, yep, yep. Perfect. So we're we, right on track. We, we may have Mark Miller Overdrive. Yeah, we're on, we're on schedule here. Yeah, and well, if you watch Kingsman, all that happened there, too. Well, I guess if there's only one issue left of this miniseries, I'll just 
bite it and read it because this will be the first full Miller thing I've ever read. Hey, congratulations. Or, well, congratulations. Oh, I don't know which way to... Welcome to hell. Here's your accordion. Well, eh, well, you know, his stuff, I mean, for better or worse, he has P.T. Barnum his way, um, you know, to creating a lot of very successful franchises and has um, gotten a lot of people uh, into his stuff. I mean, you know, for every Mark Miller uh, detractor, there are, you know, five fans. And the same way goes for Rob Liefeld. You know, for everybody that poops sure. on his art, there's 20 people that want to jump up and down and, and buy everything that he's ever done. So, eh, you know. Well, by the time I first entered all my data after reading this, I put this issue at a 3.5 because I was like, oh, it's still Chrononauts. It's still pretty fun. And then before I did my review, it was at a three. <laughs> and now I'm just really sad. Now it's two Aww. and a half. Oh, Zach. Aww. Zach. Two and a half slices of meatloaf. He's, I guess I'll turning finish into this one next of month. Us. You're supposed to be... The young, cool. You're one. supposed to have supposed hope. To be the, bright, the thing is, you're supposed to be fresh. No. If they get a good director for this, Join the us. movie should be really freaking cool. Yeah, all I know right now is Universal has picked it up. There's no release date. There's no uh, writer attached as of the time that I uh, saw the announcement heard, made. So I heard it's going to star Taron Killam and Chris Parnell. No, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, uh, Universal Pictures. Let's see, Chrono Be great if it was Sam- Sandberg on Parnell. <laughs> or Sandberg and kill him. This yeah. comes from uh, Deadline. How about Justin uh, Che? Date March nineteenth. Um, looks like Morgan uh, Freeman. Chris Morgan will produce under the Chris Morgan Productions banner. Miller and Murphy will co-produce Chrononauts. Blah blah blah. Who's funding it? Blah, blah, blah. It doesn't say anything about release dates or anything. I mean, it's maybe too early to to get into that. So there you go. Well, there's my lackluster review of Chrononauts. At least you were honest. You know, that's the main thing. Be honest. I didn't think you had a lackluster review. I think you reviewed a lackluster book. Yeah, well. There you go. I feel lackluster. (coughs) Thank you, Zach. Thank you, Rodrigo. Thank you, Matthew. And listeners, you can head over to Majorspoilers.com and check out a lot more reviews. While you're over there, if you want to pick up maybe Kingsman, maybe you want to pick up uh, another uh, of the... um, Resident Alien volumes, use that Amazon link. Click on that button in the upper right-hand side of the page. That will take you through our affiliate page, and everything that you buy at Amazon through that link a little bit comes back to us and allows us to continue to go week after week after week. So uh, there you go. Let's get to the major spoilers pull of the week. So uh, I've got a room that still seven years later after being in this house. Actually, it's a little over seven years now. It's haunted. It's almost eight years, Jimmy, Christmas. Actually, yeah, it's been eight years since we've been in this house. Mm-hmm. Well, Still got a room old. that I'm trying to unpack. And uh, <laughs> there are a lot of statues. There are a lot of comics. There's a lot of Lego. There's, I mean, it's going to take me several months to get through everything. And I'm going to make some decisions on what I keep and what I, what I put up on the eBay. But I do know that I like statues. And I do know that I like these life-size prop replicas that I've been getting more and more of and 3D printing some and, and whatnot. But uh, the question that I have for you guys this week is what would you rather fill – what would you rather have to fill your nerd room of doom? Would you rather have statues of which none of them can be taller than three feet, I believe? Mm-hmm. Or would you rather have life-size prop replicas? Rodrigo? That's a complicated question for me because my first thought would be that I would rather have the replicas. Mm-hmm. But – 
only if I could somehow get exactly the prop replicas out of the things that I wanted, which is rare, I'm much more likely to be able to find statues of characters I like, even if they're just like those little like um yeah, yeah, those, little, those little busts sure, sure. or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um that is it's much more likely that I'd be able to find that than say, I don't know. It, the glitch from reboot or something like oh, that. Oh, I bet it's out there. Let me look. I'm sure. I'm going to go look up on Yegi and see if it's there. Uh, Matthew, what about you? I kind of had the same question that Rodrigo did in the same issue, but what it really comes down to is I actually have my my daughter and I share a collection of stuff from uh, the Super Sentai Gokaiger series. Mm-hmm. And the really cool stuff is up top. We have all of the morphers, and we have the thing, and we have the the treasure chest, and then we also have like two hundred of the little statues. Well, they're not statues; the little ranger keys. And I got to tell you, the number of characters that I enjoy, I think logistically, just in terms of ownership, I'm I'm actually happier with the props. I have an original series phaser, an original series communicator. I wish I had the set of uh, Green Lantern rings of the, the emotional spectrum that came in the metal. Oh, yeah. But yeah, I, have, yeah. Mm-hmm. I have the plastic giveaway sets. I mean, yeah. that stuff oh, is and cool. You also, that's stuff that you can just kind of keep. When, when you're out here from Nerdtacular, I've also got uh, a Legion of Superheroes ring for you, Flight Ring. Oh, cool. Yeah, that was sent to us by Nate. That's cool. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I went with the, the replicas because... Honestly, my favorite superhero series has 85 members. My second favorite is 235 and counting. And as we go down the list, even the Avengers, there's like 65 Avengers. And if I had a set of Avengers statues, I would not be happy until I had Triathlon and Stingray and Silverclaw because that's that's the way my brain works, I mm-hmm. guess. Cool. Uh, I went uh, up to uh, Yegi, Y-E-G-G-I dot com, did a search for Reboot Glitch. And here is the reboot glitch key tool. Yeah, no, it's not the same as glitch, but uh, <laughs> I'm no, I'm 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 changing my answer because just in the time that we were talking, I found the mask that San wears in Princess Mononoke and Beta Ray Bill's oh, yeah, hammer. Yeah. So nope, I'll go with replicas. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, there's something Bill's nice hammer? about. Yep. How the, much is Bill's hammer? It's like five hundred bucks, but in this theoretical <laughs> nerd room, presumably I get to fill it out with whatever replicas I want without yeah. breaking the bank. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. That's true too. Oh. Although you know, quite honestly, some of these statues are as expensive as oh, Beta Ray sure, Bills. I absolutely. mean, uh, one that we were talking about this week on the want list uh, on the audio edition, there is a statue of oh the the Superman Red Sun. It stands just over two feet tall. It's five hundred bucks. I actually no. Yeah, five hundred bucks, I believe, is what you need to get for that. I was thinking for some reason seven hundred dollars, but I think it's four hundred and seventy bucks total. So there you go for that, Zach. What about you? It comes down to your vote right now and uh, your uh, level of interest in in geeky things. Uh, my vote is going for life size prop replicas, and I because I think. Uh, that would just be really cool to have because I think if you could just give me a Sky Mall magazine, like across across uh, a <laughs> flight across the country, yeah, I could probably find a lot of really cool Star Wars stuff because that's pretty much what yep. Sky yep. Mall is well, for. You, know, the, uh, you could find. I bet I want like a lightsaber and Han's pistol. I'm mm-hmm. sure that would be really cool. Like yeah. a oh, cool yeah. shadow box. Yep. on your coffee table. Yep, that'd be great. Yep. Uh, what else? Cool stuff. Oh man, I've got a briefcase uh, from Pulp Fiction over at our YouTube channel, Major Spoilers Video. I did an unboxing where I've got. 
uh, now a life-size uh, replica of Captain America's shield, mm-hmm. Dr. Fate's helmet, oh, wow. and Jay Garrick's uh, helmet as well. You know what I think? They have a be Garrick cool? helmet? I got somebody made it off of, on eBay. Mm-hmm. But, Dude, I uh, want a Garrick helmet. But I, from the same guy, I also got the Dr. Fate helmet. But last month, or maybe it's this month in previews, uh, they have a 24 karat gold plated Dr. Fate helmet in the same life size uh, wow. proportions. But it's something like $1,000 or oh, something like that. That so. seems cheap for. Well, for yeah, for it's gold plated. Uh-huh. So, but you know, Matthew, they have and uh, up on eBay now they have uh, the life size uh, Ranger helmets. Uh, I think red and green are the ones that are most popular. Though I have seen a couple of pinks yeah. pop up from time to My time. God, Matthew, we would look so cool trick or treating in the neighborhood this year, right? <laughs> There's actually a guy who uh, collects life size Ranger helmets, and he has tons of them. He has a Mega Silver, who you guys have probably not heard of. He, he's he's totally obscure, but he has a mega silver helmet that looks so cool. I don't even like mega silver, and the helmet looks so great that I want the helmet. I also want a magneto helmet. Can you get me a magneto? Uh, I can three D print you one. I've been waiting to to print this one out, but it takes a lot of time to sand it down and uh, putty it up, and then paint it to look just like magneto's. But go up onto Thingiverse and do a search for magneto helmet. You'll see this kid who's made one that fits perfectly and it looks great. He put a perfect paint job on this. If I had a life-size Captain America shield, yeah. I'd put it up on the wall, and then next to it, I would put a pane of glass and project the Captain America shield onto it. So, like, it's like I have the uh. vibranium shield, and then, like, I have, like, his laser shield that he had for a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. <laughs> oh, you are such a nerd. I, I love am. it. Yeah. You also would have to put the triangular shield. Yeah, and, like, did U.S. Agent have a darker shield, or was it the same shield? eBay, you know, a lot of people... Agent, for a while, had a, a plain silver adamantium shield and for right. a while he had one with a big eagle on it oh yeah yeah you know even though th- some of these things are not licensed you can go onto ebay and people are making prop replicas our friend Chinbeard, um uh, bill duran mm-hmm. he makes prop replicas of video game stuff i've got one of his masks uh, sitting over here from um what is it uh, what is that video game series rodrigo with the dragon priest masks or whatever they are oh skyrim skyrim yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. elder scrolls yeah. yeah yep um but yeah, if you go online, I bet you could find a life-size, let me do a search real quick, life-size U.S. Agent Shield. Uh, I also wouldn't mind having Mal's pistol from Serenity. I, you can probably find it. The one that I want, and if you go over to Tested.com on their video channel, Adam Savage runs you through all of the prop replicas of the Blade Runner gun and show you which ones are really good and which ones are really bad. And it's fascinating to see how good and bad these things can be. Uh, yes, here can I is get a replica of Daryl Hannah at no, never mind. Uh, Captain America comic book blue stripe 1940 uh, life size heater shield replica 150 bucks doesn't look exactly right, but it looks pretty darn close. Wow. And here is a new Legend of Zelda uh, Hy- Hylian shield link Triforce life sized uh, night shield that you can get. Mm-hmm. A lot of people make those. Uh, technically, it's a statue, but if you want to get a one to one scale Hulkbuster, they are selling those on eBay. For uh, eighteen thousand dollars, so where would you put that? Well, ten feet tall, so I've got twelve <laughs> foot high ceilings. So, what, yeah. how high are your doors? Yeah. Well, it comes in. Oh, can you it take comes it in. It comes in eight different boxes. The oh, thing okay. weighs like um, fourteen hundred pounds, just over fourteen hundred pounds. Wow. Yeah. Ooh. It's big. It's a good thing your you rooms in the basement. Yes, exactly. Because <laughs> so otherwise, it would the go foundation. through the ceiling. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty heavy. Uh-huh. 
But uh, yeah, there's all sorts of cool uh, life-size prop replicas, and I've been getting into those more and more over the last couple of years, and I have a plan for what I'm going to do with it, and it's going to make <laughs> some little kid flip his lid. You're going to do the ple- uh, Be Kind Rewind and just make all those fake movies? No, what I think I'm, I'm going to do, this is a secret, everybody, so don't spoil it. Okay. Yeah, but what I'm going to do is I'm, I'm, i got to get like, 10 more pieces. I'm either like this Kryptonian uh, key over here that I 3d printed and the whole, and the uh, flash ears that I did a mm-hmm. while ago. Um, I want to get about 10 more pieces and then I'm going to go someday when he goes to school and go into his room and do a total makeover of the room, new shelves, new desk, paint the walls and everything, and then hang these pieces up as trophy pieces and turn his bedroom into kind of a nerd room of doom junior mm-hmm. uh, edition. But it's a trophy room with just these things like, uh, I've got a Superman's cape to to hang up and that kind of stuff. I think he'd get a kick out of that. So sounds yeah. pretty sweet. Oh, yeah. oh, oh, oh! That bust that has a button inside that opens the door they, to the back. They cave. sell those oh. every once in a while. They'll pop up in the uh, previews catalog. And a red phone. You a need red the red and they phone. do. And they have the red phone. Not only do they have the red phone, Matthew, but it's also under the little uh, glass uh, cake uh, topper. Nice. So, oh, and wow. or. That little smiling clown phone from Powerpuff Girls. Okay, at last yeah. I'm going to talk about this because we need to get into this next segment. But last month in previews, they had a uh, Gotham City PD, the uh, Gotham uh, television series. They had the life-size badge. This month in previews, it's the um, Central City Police Department badge that they nice. have. So um, there you go. What's the, What has everybody voted for so far, Matthew, on the poll of the week? The poll of the week at Major Spoiler, 72 votes in the hole as of the moment ago when I looked, and now there's a button that's open, and I have to push this button over here. Hang on. Please stand by. Do, 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 do. 76 votes now. 61% saying statues. 39% saying life-size prop replicas. And I think if they could get a replica of Robin's utility belt with a little working radio in the front that also works as a walkie-talkie, that would I, change their mind. I know they have a prop replica of Batman's belt. Robin's belt was cooler because Robin's belt to think if has they had, hidden capsules. I'm trying to think if they had one of those. I'm sure at some point one of those has been offered up for sale, uh, whether it be the one from the comics or the Batman 66 stuff. I would love to you have can get a green anything you want at your hat. local comic shop. Like can I get uh, a green hornet mask and hat? Probably like a, a Superman S that that turns into a big <laughs> giant, uh, uh, like a tarpic cellophane that you can like throw on people and <laughs> then disappears. Capture, <laughs> capture bad can guys. Can you 3D print me that? All right, listeners, head over to majorspoilers.com, cast your vote in the major spoilers poll of the week, then use the comment section to share your thoughts. We uh, love uh, looking at and reading and talking about uh, many of your comments that you'll find over at the site. And uh, so far we have uh, one person saying, as a proud nerd with roughly 130 action figures, I have to go with statues. Another person says, I voted for neither. I would rather festoon my room with art sketches. Well, that's not something that was on this list, but that is something that could go up on a list in another time. Uh, I got dozens of statues and action figures. Some are high end, but still my dream is to have nicely decorated classroom room with museum style displays of life size replicas. Yep. Uh, life size replicas are too large, in my honest opinion, says Clever Lang Six. Um, Mike says, while I have more statues in my nerd room, I prefer life size prop replicas. And uh, the list goes on and on and on. So you guys can head over there and check that out. Uh, while you are checking things out, I know that many of you, as we get into the summer, are going to be outside walking around, 
riding the lawnmower, going on long romantic bike rides uh, out to uh, the, the wilds of western Kansas. And uh, really, you don't want to be interacting with anybody in any of those inter- mm-hmm. in- instances. No. Yeah. You just want to pop some some earbuds in your ear and just enjoy listening to the Major Spoilers podcast or really any of the shows on the Major Spoilers podcast network. You can do that, listeners, by heading to tweakedaudio.com and picking yourself up a pair of tweaked audio headphones. So many different styles, so many different colors. Uh, every time someone buys a pair of these, I usually get an email or I see a, a, a tweet pop up that says, hey, just got these in, and you are right. These are the best headphones out there. I have not seen anything that comes close to this. And customer service at Tweaked Audio is so great. These are great people that uh, that are over there fulfilling these orders and taking care of their customers. And the headphones, like I said, are great as well. They're designed for great sound, music, and talk, engineered for durability, great noise reduction so that when you are on the uh, on the road riding your bike, you don't have to worry about those pesky cars coming up behind you. <laughs> Retail price, $19.99 to $34.99. But when you use the checkout code MAJOR, M-A-J-O-R, at tweakedaudio.com, you get 33% off the price. Thank you, Tweaked Audio, for sponsoring this portion of the Major Spoilers podcast. Well, last month, Dr. Peter Coogan got us all thinking a little bit about the Klan and how the superhero uniform may have evolved from that. Dr. Peter Coogan uh, from the Comic Arts Institute is back again this month. Dr. Coogan, surely we're going to talk about something something not as controversial as uh, as the KKK. Well, Nazis. Who oh, man. Nazis. Nuts to Nazis. That's what I say, right? This yep. segment is now called, How Can We Ruin Something Else For You? <laughs> <laughs> now, actually, this, unlike the uh, the discussion of the Klan, I think it'll have the reverse effect. That's the hope. Well, yeah. and uh, w- let me just start off by th- saying that, you know, in comic books, especially in World War II, uh, every superhero went and uh, beat up the Nazis. Uh, one of them even punched out Hitler on the cover of the magazine. Um, <laughs> actually, there's Daredevil a website called Hitler. Punching Hitler. Oh, really? Everybody, everybody loves to punch Hitler. Well, who doesn't yeah, love America to punch punched Hitler? Hitler, Superman punched Hitler. But as the we look at, at comic Teenage books, student into turtles punched Hitler. As we as we look at comics, though, past World War II, Nazis make a perfect foil because it's an organization. Well. It's an organization that doesn't uh, exist from a national perspective, from a national country's perspective. Uh, and so you can have someone like Perdigaton uh, pop up every once in a while or Red Skull, and you can just bash the heck out of them without uh, really inciting too much trouble from any one country or group of people. Right. There's no uh, there's no sort of pro-Nazi group out there that's, that's fighting it because they, they – they are the ultimate villains in many ways. They don't. They don't get a kind of say yeah. in representation. The way um, uh, many many uh, populations which have been misrepresented in the past um, and are parts of the audience. Although we'll, we'll talk about that, the sort of substitute Nazis because of the uh, issues of 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 selling comics and films. Sure. And so, and yeah. German. Definitely. So you, this is all based on a presentation that you gave recently in – where was it? Washington State or was it in St. No, Louis? No, it's at the uh, – it's in St. Louis. I'm okay. at Washington University in ah, St. Okay. Louis. okay. All right. Wustel. Um, and I gave it at the Missouri Historical Society, which currently has an exhibition on Nazi propaganda. 
Well, you know, one nice I, I will say this uh, about the Nazi propaganda uh, propaganda engine. They were crazy out of control and there was some really good design in what they were doing. Uh, you can even look at film and people still look at the uh, Reefy. Uh, what's her name? Um, Lenny Reefenstahl uh, with her. Um, with her documentary and how it really kind of defined what documentary is. But then, of course, uh, the Allies flipped that all around on on the Nazis and used it for their own stuff. Mm -hmm. So where do we where do we begin? Well, um, what I'd like to begin, uh, I sent uh, uh, my talk, basically, and I started with the idea of, of Hellboy fighting uh, an Adolf Hitler robot, knocking his head off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The brain gets saved. It gets put into, of course, the uh, glass encased cranium of an ape. He's called Brainy Ape, uh, and uh, he uses his telepathy to to make Savage Dragon and Hellboy fight. Savage Dragon knocks his helmet, his uh, his brain off. The brain grows legs and arms, <laughs> picks up a gun, and Savage Dragon, you know, throws a dagger in it and kills Hitler's brain finally. And the idea there, though, is that Nazis will always come back, right? That right, idea right. Is, is throughout popular culture. Mm -hmm. uh, boys from Brazil, the uh, they saved Hitler's brain. The um, hate monger in early Fantastic Four comics. The hate monger, exactly. Well, in the uh, Elseworlds series, Golden Age, that was the whole pl plot point: is that they had uh, transferred Hitler's brain into someone else's body. Exactly, and, and so radioactive brain, no less. Well. You can't not have a radioactive brain. Um, but anyway, so that – and it's going to be because of the inherent exaggeration of superheroes. It's it's going to be wacky. It's going to be goofy. It's going to be um, something extreme. And you actually see this in the depiction of Hitler versus the depiction of straight-up Nazi soldiers. So. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But the main thing is that it's uh, – super uh, Nazis, sorry, make perfect – opponents for superheroes because they are oppositional in a number of ways. So um, we can start off with that, that, you know, you see Captain America punching Hitler in the face. And, and right. that, was a, that was a direct attempt by Joe Simon and Jack Kirby to get the U.S. into war. This came out a year before Pearl, Pearl Harbor. And uh, they got, you know, police protection. There were serious threats against them. Sold a million copies, so people were interested in this. And and you have the idea that the U.S. kind of mythology and the way it thinks of itself and the way Nazi Germany presents itself are in many ways in opposition. Uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt in the 1941 State of Union Address said there were four fundamental freedoms that everybody ought to enjoy, freedom of speech, freedom of worship – freedom from want, and freedom from fear. And if you look at the Nazi propaganda at the time, it's all about, well, sacrifice, right? Mm -hmm, sacrifice mm -hmm. for the, the war. Okay. Uh, fear, fear the Bolshevik, fear the Jew. Um, in terms of speech, it's Hitler who's speaking, right? Right, right. The, the mass of people are not speaking, as opposed to the... the, the um, uh, Rockwell painting, which shows a man mm -hmm. standing up at a, at a at a meeting, and freedom of of worship. You know, in America, you can be Jewish, Protestant, Catholic, Muslim, and Germany's uh, Nazi Germany's propaganda posters show a kind of fusion of Nazi Germany 
and divine sanction Mm -hmm. in a number of ways. So, these kind of mythologies oppose each other neatly, and the superheroes stand for America and for what America stands for, and the Nazi characters stand for what Nazi Germany stands for. But, you know, we look at characters like, and of course, um, you know, Captain America uh, punching out Hitler is is super well known. But, you know, Superman is almost created as a direct opposition to the Nazis. Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, the the way that Superman takes the Ubermensch and turns it from this, this the Nazi Ubermensch, uh, to, and turns it from a figure of, of, of challenge of challenging of bourgeois modernity into a kind of defender of modern bourgeois society. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That, that Superman is there to kind of preserve after he gets over his first year at any rate, he's there to kind of preserve the status quo and to, and to keep things moving along. And, and the, the Nazi idea is to sort of up t- turn all of that over and shift the whole world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so the, the opposition comes in, first of all, Superhero means good and Nazi means bad, right? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Nobody likes a grammar Nazi, <laughs> right? Soup Nazi. He's not a soup artist. He's a soup Nazi, right? Because there's, and that allows his negative characteristics to come out. Uh, the term feminazi, uh, the use of Nazi imagery with uh, Barack Obama, or I even found a campaign poster that put a little Hitler mustache on. Uh, Adolf Romney, as he was called in the poster. So um, that's an, these are examples in some ways of what's called Godwin's Law, which is uh, Godwin is a, a professor who noticed on internet uh, message boards that if you went along long enough with an argument, somebody, somebody calls somebody else a Nazi. Somebody compares somebody to the Nazis, right? Yep. It does it's happen. Inevitable. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And go ahead. It happened to me about a week and a half ago, actually. Mm-hmm. And I hope it was a joke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And on the other hand, if you use superhero, well, that's a good thing. Uh, Michael Uslan, producers of the Batman films, mm-hmm. said, My own mother and father sacrificed so much to raise me and my brother, and they taught us life's most important lessons in the process, often by example. They are my superheroes. So superheroes is a way of saying this person is good. So you think of like the everyday superhero, uh, you know, ordinary people living extraordinary lives. Um, There's a whole meme about nurses. I'm a nurse. What's your superpower? Right. Right. Uh, There is actually a 5k run called the everyday superhero 5k uh, one mile walk. So the idea is that if you're acting like a superhero, you're doing good. And if you're acting like a Nazi, you're doing bad. Right, right. And what's what's interesting is that um, in terms of their kind of, I don't know, I would call it almost epistemology, the kind of establishment of knowledge, um, superheroes and Nazis are, are opposites. Superheroes dep- depend on hybridity, a mixture of things. Mm-hmm. Nazis depend on a purity. So um, I want to note um, Claire uh, Pickethley, there, I pronounced it correctly. Claire Pickethley did her dissertation on Amazons and specifically on Wonder Woman as an Amazon. But mm. she noted that in uh, classical Greece, there are three villains, and they are Trojans, 
centaurs, and Amazons. And the reason that they're the villains of Greek uh, myth and Greek society is that they dramatize hierarchical privilege, right? So each of those is marked by an otherness or a divergence. So it's Greek against foreigner, human against beast, and male against female. In other words, the best thing you could be is to be a, a Greek man, right? Because you're a human being, you're Greek, and you're male. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so you constantly see this overcoming of the other by the one, the Greek being the, the one. And Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman all incorporate an otherness. The big three are, in fact, like anti-Greeks, right? Because Superman is an alien. He's a foreigner. Wonder Woman is a woman, right? And Batman is an animal, human and animal. And so their powers come out of their otherness. Interesting. No, that's, yeah. that's, I mean, that's interesting to think about it before. And I think maybe we have talked about this before in another time when you were on uh, in these representations that, that they can align to. And so when you think about that, then it kind of sets the superhero again, that parallel between dark and light, good and evil. Yeah. Up and down, back and forth, whatever you want to put in there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and that idea, though, that the superhero represents that hybrid, and and actually the genre does too. Uh, Danny Fingeroth, you know, who's the group Spider-Man editor at Marvel for 15 years, he said, the superhero story is a separate, albeit hybrid genre. It's a mix of science fiction, fantasy, fairy tale, western, detective, soap opera, romance, and other genres, combined with elements of opera and professional wrestling. It's a melting pot of other genres. Now, where do we know the term melting pot from? You know, America, superhero is American because the superhero blends, right? The, the power always comes from the other, mm -hmm. right. whether it's science or sorcery or, uh, um, you know, the kind of Tibet, you know, getting right. power from somewhere else, the right, ancient right. past, radiation. the far mm -hmm. future, radiation. Right? Mm -hmm. and, and America from the many one, right? America is this hybrid nation. Okay, so you have that double hybridity of the superhero's powers and the um, and the genre going up against Nazis. Well, Nazis are founded on racial purity and the persecution and exclusion of the other, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, you know, you can think of following the Greeks. What are the three worst things, or what are the three things you have to be to be to be good? You have to be. Uh, an, uh, you know, German, mm -hmm. and you have to be, or you have to be Aryan, rather. Right. You have to be healthy, and you have to follow Nazi ideology. So the opponents of this would be the uh, uh, the Jew, right? Non-Aryan. Mm -hmm. Right. The uh, cripple, people who are crippled, handicapped, anybody with any kind of biological birth defects or, or you know, any of that, mm -hmm. and the Bolshevik. And the thing is, you you can't imagine the Bolshmensch, right? Der Yuda, Das Krupel, as, yeah, 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 yeah. as Nazi superheroes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> wow. Right? So these these are exactly opposite each other. And that works out well. And the uh, the next one is the reaction to modernity. So I like the picture from uh from Charlie Chaplin's Modern Times, which shows him as this, this little figure in a great cog of a machine, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because, you know, modernism is about formal social organization, right? 
So it's no longer just people are doing whatever they want. There's this, there's this formal hierarchical social organization, specialization, right? Division of labor. If you've ever heard of uh, uh, Frederick Taylor, he, he came in with Taylorism and he would, he would observe workers and time their movements. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you see that now in, in, uh, all kinds of things controlled by computers, right? Mm-hmm. That, that workers, everything they do is monitored. Um, Charlie Chaplin's film again shows him, you know, on the assembly line. The assembly line is a very modern device, right? It breaks the work down into discrete units. You can be replaced. You're a cog. You can be replaced completely. It's dehumanizing, right? It's everything stratified. Um, again, from modern times, there's a scene where he's in the the tramp is in the washroom. And his boss on a TV camera comes in and, you know, yeah. observes him, tells him to get back to work. And and what's interesting about that, too, and tying back into the modernism, is that the film is generally silent, except when someone's talking on the technology, when yeah. his boss is there telling him to get back to work. Yeah. Oh. And so there's this, there's this great scene where he uh, he's eating, and that's the most sort of human of things, and yet all these machines are feeding him. So it's that mm-hmm. dehumanized thing. Well, um, Nazis... Uh, are in some ways the kind of pinnacle of modernism, right? The um, this is from the somebody named Zygmunt Bauman in Modernity and the Holocaust. The Holocaust was born and executed in our modern rational society at the high stage of our civilization, at the peak of human cultural achievement, right? It's not an irrational outflow of the not yet eradicated residues of pre-modern bar- barbarity. It's the legitimate resident in the house of modernity. You know, Auschwitz has been called the pinnacle of modernism. Because think about all the kind of organizational uh, and industrial control and production that the Nazis had to produce to produce the death camps. Even just the piles of shoes, everything being sorted, even the, 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 the Nazi ideology. One of the things about modernism is it divides, it classifies and divides things into these little discrete, very small units. Right, so they they had to have the the technology to to classify everybody as according to race. Uh, they had to have a survey uh, where they tracked down um, how many Jews were in a country. Right, With the idea that they would then go back and get, they would then after they conquered the country they they would get them. So modernism is about that sort of classification, division, uh, rationalization. All of that stuff, right? Well, if you look at superheroes, superheroes are about overcoming that kind of dehumanization. So Superman is an individual, right? He's completely unique. He's marked by his costume. Same thing with all other superheroes. You can pick them out of a crowd. Right. Uh, in modern times, you see this mass of people flooding into the factories. You can't tell one from the other. They're mm-hmm. sheep. They're actually mm-hmm. compared to sheep. You know, the the... Faster than a speeding bullet, more powerful than a locomotive, able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. Well, think about that. The gun, the locomotive, the skyscraper. Yeah, these he's modern overpa- – these. yeah, he's overpowering these modern overpowering technologies. The symbols of modern civilization and technology. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, right. And I've all never of that – considered that. I'm – oh, man. Stop yeah. blowing my mind. I'm too <laughs> old for this. Yeah. Well, there's a great book coming out by Aldo Rigaldo called Bending Steel, Modernity and the American Superhero. Mm. And uh, the, my analysis of the, the, the superhero modernism is really taken from uh, Rigaldo's book. I got to, I got to uh, read a copy of it as, uh, from the press 
to um, to review it for publication. And I didn't even have to read. It. I was like, publish this. Um, but uh, so I feel you know privileged to have read that. But um, you know, he says. Um, the Superman of the late 1930s and early 1940s was defined by his triumph over technological, institutional, infrastructural, and bureaucratic forces that most would celebrate as markers of American military, economic, and global supremacy. Furthermore, Superman was not alone. Most of the superheroes created to follow in the wake of his success were similarly defined by their oppositional or transcendent stance toward indices of American power and progress. Mm -hmm, At mm -hmm. their genesis, therefore, superheroes are cultural responses to modernity. And he points out that unlike other fictional heroes like Tarzan or John Carter from Edgar Rice Burroughs, who fled urban environments to prove their manhood in a wilderness away from the corrupting influences of the industrial city, superheroes live in the cities. They tackle modernity head on. Yeah. Right? And this is because... We, what were their creators doing? You see the the you know largely Jewish creators of superheroes, new immigrants living in, managing, you know making their way, make, getting ahead in cities, mm -hmm. and so the superhero is that is that all you know really a modern figure because it comes out of a lot of you know printing technology and and science and this stuff, but. Symbolically, the superhero kind of struggles against and overcomes successfully modernity. There's a great image of Superman. Um, it's in Action Comics number seven. And he's tearing down a bridge. It's not connected to any story. It's just Superman ripping up what looks to be the Brooklyn Bridge. Yeah, with, his, mm. with his hands. Yeah, yeah. 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 That wasn't... I'm trying to think too. Wasn't one of the um, earlier Superman tales? I mean, and we've seen him taking on like slum lords and mm -hmm. um, you know, like media corporation heads, those kind of of corrupt officials, uh, quite a bit. Is that tie also back into this idea? Well, that's part of it because Superman. Um, Bradford Wright refers to um, Superman as a super New Dealer. He's sort of like Roosevelt. He's an activist government. So in that sense, it's mm -hmm. very, it's very much a product of of the kind of uh, revolution of from 1880 to 1920, where you got bureaucratization, industrialization, immigration, professionalism, professionalization, urbanization, all the shuns. Right. Mm -hmm. That that. Uh, Superman rec represents that impulse to fix things, but he's able to overcome uh, all the forces that uh, that that kind of hold that back. Um, and the and the Nazis, you know, again represent all of those forces sort of put into full effect without any kind of a break, without any kind of of humanity applied to it. And Superman, you know, is, is again working in kind of a modernist way in the sense of being a reformist and trying to fix things, but also doing so for the purpose of aiding people. And, and that's another difference is that the superhero uses individualism in service of the community, right? Absolutely. The superhero totally helps people and, and the places he lives and so forth, but does so as an individual, marked again by the costume. In Nazis, for the Nazis, the, the community, the state, right, was everything. And the individual was just a complete cog in it. Uh, that, that, you know, the things that the Nazis had individuals do 
mm-hmm. was completely about denying their humanity. You know, it's not good for you to kill people. It's 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 bad for you psychologically. And yet that was the whole Nazi enterprise. But in superheroes, you find that individual working for the community, but not not sort of being overwhelmed by uh, that. And you look at the costumes again, where where with Superman and and Batman, you can tell them apart. The the you know the the Nazi uniform makes everybody look the same, right? right. The Aryan right. ideal of the blonde, blue eyed, you know creature. Everybody's the same. So, but here's the here's the thing that we see time and time again in superhero stories, and maybe you're going to get to this, or maybe I'm jumping ahead. But time and time again, we will see someone like Superman who's like, "I'm here to fix the problems, and you people aren't helping me out." So therefore, I'm taking over everything, and then you know, smash cut to the next panel, and Superman's wearing this very uh, Nazi esque uniform, you know, those black uh, straight lines and everything. And and, you know, these future tales of what would happen if Superman snapped or, you know, somebody uh, in control decided that it was better for me to just take over and rule you guys in this very uh, Nazi fashion. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the, the, so that's a, a thread that runs throughout um, kind of a dynamic that runs throughout the history of superheroes is is there's a definition of fascism as forcing other people to do what's good for them. Right. Um, and and when you think that uh, that the them are you know inferior uh, 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 people who are harming the world by their existence, then what's good for them is to die. But um, obviously that's not what superheroes are there for. But preventing people from doing um, from doing bad things to each other. You see this, you know, Batman's bat robots that come in um, mm-hmm. the in the Age of Ultron. You see this with uh, with the Iron Legion and and so forth. The, the the difference is that with superheroes that's always a danger and the supervillain is actually what keeps the superhero from from pursuing that um, I talk about how the the most important superhero comic book is action comics number one the second one is action comics number 12 when the ultra humanite comes in because mm-hmm. that's when Superman stops being the social reformer and starts to be a social defender and there's a great um, I don't have the issue but I think it's written by Mark Millar there's a great uh, issue of Spider-Man where um, he runs into the Scorpion um, at a cafe, he's drinking coffee and he runs into him and recognize they recognize each other. And anyway, and, and the Scorpion points out that supervillains were created by the U.S. government. Uh, they gave contracts to Norman Osborn. They're mostly ex-GIs mm, because mm-hmm. the government was afraid of what would happen if superheroes figured out that you know fighting petty street crime wasn't changing anything and decided to really do something to fix the world. Hmm. And so supervillains are this plot by the government to distract superheroes from taking on major social change. That's that's interesting because we see that uh, kind of run through a, a plot for those people who've watched uh, Justice League and uh, Justice League um, Unlimited, the animated series, where you have – Amanda Waller and um, the general and all these other people from Star Labs basically conspiring to do everything they can from a government perspective to keep the heroes occupied with other things. That's actually textually part of the backstory of I don't know if you guys have ever read Martial Law yeah. uh, from Kevin O'Neill and um, the other dude whose name escapes me. But that is one where 
the superheroes are explicitly created and the supervillains explicitly created by the government to distract the general populace from the ills of the world. And martial law, the one character who is literally wearing Nazi iconography, is our hero in this weird crapsack world. And that's what I keep thinking about when we talk about this is that character in a world where the superhero becomes the villain, then the superhero that uh, that actually goes against the superhero archetype becomes a Nazi archetype and somehow is our hero in that story. Yeah. So th- there's there's a lot of ways in which the, the superhero and the Nazi uh, or the fascist kind of bounce off each other. Um, superheroes were accused sort of just before uh, sort of World War II and, and a little bit into it of, of, of being fascists, of being mm-hmm. – what mm-hmm. you described, Stephen. And then the the war kind of gave them a carte blanche because they were fighting their very effective form of propaganda. Yeah. Um, there's, a, there's a thing called um, moral pornography, which is that superheroes are to morality what pornography is to sex. Oh, my God. Yeah, no, this is a great it's, – it's by David Pizarro and Roy Baumeister, and it's in a little book called Our Superheroes Ourselves, uh, edited by Robin Rosenberg. <laughs> but I read this article, and I was just amazed. So he, they say that superhero comics depict an exaggerated morality that has been stripped of its real-world subtlety. Right? In Tales of Superhero versus Supervillain, moral good and moral bad are always – the actions of easily identifiable moral agents with unambiguous intentions and actions, much like the appeal of the exaggerated, caricatured sexuality mm, found mm-hmm. in pornography. Mm-hmm. Wow. So in, in a sense, then, the fact that we see uh, as a reader people getting so worked up of, oh, my God, look at him. He punched out those Nazis and he took him in and said, oh, yeah. you know, kind of this reaction. Yeah. That is something, though, that even I mean, now is still one of these issues that permeates through a lot of media and what people call the heavy handedness of a character. Oh, why does the villain have to go and and beat up the woman or or uh, do these uh, horrible things when only to prove that he's the villain or endanger the child or whatever? Right. Yeah. And 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 what they say is that uh, this moral pornography is built to satisfy our moralistic urges but ultimately unrealistic and in the end unsatisfying. And uh, this is the one that I love. Oh, well, Um, you know, before you get into that makes perfect sense because um, I forget whether what, where I saw it is, but it was, why can't Superman just go over and punch out Hitler and in the war? Right. Well, they can't do that in the comics because it's not really reflective of the real life. And so they had to introduce the, uh, the spear of destiny and the magics and everything, keeping a lot of the superheroes from, from getting in the way. So does yeah. that kind of align with that that second part of your statement there? Um, yeah, yeah, it absolutely does, and it connects something that uh, that I'm just about to also uh, get to. Um, but this, the high success rate of superheroes and defeating supervillains in issue after issue is wildly implausible. Just as the rate of sexual congress depicted in a pornography at 100 mm. percent is also unrealistic, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? Wow. Is that, that they make this argument that that you know men watch porn- pornography, men basically want more sex than they're getting right right, right. um where and they and you look at pornography and you see you know every time a man tries something it works and mm-hmm. and the same thing is true in superhero comics every time they fight they win right, right. and and that so you get that moral satisfaction and, and in some ways this is like what um I, michael stipe of rem once said that uh, listening to songs about the environment 
isn't doing anything about the environment. <laughs> yeah. But it does give you this feeling, this this mythic massage, right? That you are participating in something that's good. And the, here's the difference between most superhero moral pornography in World War II, that the instant satisfaction of superhero stories, right, is unrealistic in the real unrealistic in the real world. Evil is not marked by the presence of loud, unambiguous cues, except in World War II. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? You have clearly marked, literally marked with a swastika, mm-hmm, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. The 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 agents of evil. And so superhero moral pornography worked perfectly in World War II, and it was real. Right, right. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, but you're absolutely right. Up until, I don't know, maybe the mid to late 60s, early 70s, it seemed like it was – you would still see Nazis, whether that, as Matthew said before, uh, the hate monger in Fantastic Four – or whether you're looking at, um, you know, other characters that uh, Red Skull, so so on and so forth. But it seemed like mid seventies or so, suddenly all of that dried up, and the Nazis are replaced with Hydra. Uh, yeah. Although you you hear Hail Hydra is this or yeah is the same as Heil Hitler in the uh, alliteration uh, standpoint of that. Why why this sudden shift then from you know downplaying or hiding the Nazi in in the tales. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think, and, and only, and, and really only drawing them out or bringing them out every once in a while as this ultimate specter of, Oh my God, the president is secretly a Nazi and he rips off the plastic mask and, and whatnot. Yeah. Well, I think there's a couple of things. One is that, is that Nazis equal evil, right? Mm-hmm, it means mm-hmm. that whatever the current evil is, if you attach it to the Nazi, it's Godwin's, you know, uh, Godwin's law. If you attach it to a Nazi, it makes it worse. So in, um, you know, in the the Captain America versus the Secret Empire, and and actually Nazis and and the Klan got linked. Um, there's there's uh, Marvel comics uh, from the war where you basically have men in purple Klan outfits wearing mm. swastikas. Mm-hmm, okay, mm-hmm. Um, and and so there's that linkage. So you have the Secret Empire, the 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 secret infiltration of the government is is you know linked to a kind of fascism to a kind of Nazism. Um and and the one thing is that um in the depictions, if if you look on the covers of the comic books, whenever the superheroes are fighting uh German soldiers or Nazi soldiers, it's very serious. The Nazis are about to execute somebody. The, right, right. You know. But Hitler, on the other hand, Hitler's a figure of fun. You see him uh there's a there's a the spy Crying. smasher number yeah, yeah. nine shows yeah. spy smasher, he's got Hitler and and Tojo and Mussolini all he's smacking their faces. Um there's there's a Captain Mar there's a there's a Captain Marl Jr. where he's he's literally spanking Hitler mm-hmm. and Tojo with a belt. With yeah. a belt, yeah. That um, one's classic. So one of the things that changes over time is that you you kind of Hitler remains this figure of of you know, fun, but also focus. The, the the Nazis, as as a whole army, kind of drop away because um, it, it's harder. You know, they they represent a serious threat, but they also represent a kind of um, the actual German people, right? You want to move away mm-hmm. from that, mm-hmm. right. and 
and that then you can kind of substitute. And the other form of substitution takes place with the kind of superheroization or genreization of, of the Nazis as villains. So during World War II, there weren't many Nazi supervillains in the comics. You know, there was Captain Nazi, absolutely. Right. Mm-hmm. There was Iron Jaw, who, you know, had this big Iron Jaw, but otherwise he wasn't marked with a swastika iconographically. And there was the Armless Tiger Man. <laughs> Gotta love that guy. I know. Bit the angel <laughs> real hard one time. Yeah, he did. Yeah. It's, he, you know, he his, got his arms ripped off. And so right. he started working up in, on his legs and mouth and sharpened his teeth into fangs, right? And also his toenails are fangs or yeah, claws. Yeah. He's ridiculous, but, but he's such fun. In the 1970s, just this period you, you note, Stephen, you start to see figures like um, Baron Blitzkrieg, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you see Masterman. And Warrior Woman in the Invaders, um, and these are these are typically tied to World War II depictions. Right, but they make the Nazis into more generic supervillains, and and the more recent shift in uh, the the Batman Brave and Bold cartoon, where it's not even called World War II; it's right. just the war, mm-hmm. and it was against Per Degaton, who's a Hitler figure, and right. he has these robot soldiers. Right. But it's it's never identified. And in Captain America First Avenger, you know, the swastika does not appear in that movie. Mm-hmm. And it's replaced by Hydra. And so that allows you to tie everything by, by moving it away sort of specifically from Nazis, although having that kind of Nazi history and undercurrent, um, it, it allows you to call anything else anything evil. So we see at the end, it, after the Red Skull comes back in uh, like 1947, right? And he is just a criminal, right? He's he's doing he's hijacking medication to resell at a high cost. He is teaming up with under in 1950s when Captain America came back as you know Captain America commie smasher. The Red Skull actually teams up with. The communists. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, in the 1990s, the Red Skull became a kind of corporate villain. Yep. In uh, there's a there's a alternate future where the Red Skull is 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 overseeing the persecution of the X Men. Right. Yep. The X Men, the mutants, rather. They're the ultimate others. They stand for every kind of demographic otherness. Yep. And so the Nazi becomes this prosecutor and now you know what what are we concerned with well we're concerned with two things i think um isis al-qaeda mm-hmm. right and mm-hmm. and isis and al-qaeda what are they they're hydra they're specter right yeah. but for real <laughs> and and an overreaching government in surveillance and so in in the in the marvel cinematic universe the Nazis represent both those things, right? What is Hydra? Hydra is this international – you can't figure out what their ideology actually is. But they're this international you know, army of, of people who are willing to die for you know, Hydra. You know, hail Hydra. One, you right. cut off one head to, to appear. But also they represent, as we saw in uh, Winter Soldier, government surveillance. And so if you want something to be bad – Called a Nazi. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I find it interesting ahead, that Marvel Comics, as recently as 2009, canonically 
says that their one of their earliest superheroes, the Human Torch, literally killed Adolf Hitler in his bunker. This is part of their story. They reference this in Adve- Avengers Invaders like five years ago. Oh, yeah, by the way, I killed the Human Torch. And it's this moment that's played almost as a joke. It's almost funny amongst the heroes because the kids are like, oh, wait, he's kidding, right? And Captain America is like, no. This is still canonically part of their universe. One of their heroes actually killed, for all intents and purposes, the ultimate evil of the 20th century. Yep. That's, I mean, that's, that's pretty telling right there. I'm, I'm wondering though, and we know that in, uh, many countries, Germany especially, you know, you cannot display the swastika anywhere. You can't really, um, monetize Nazis even as a villain, uh, there. I'm wondering if this change in the 70s of downplaying the Nazis and moving Red Skull over to uh, uh, communists, which is kind of whenever I first encountered him, I I always thought he was a a communist, uh, a Russian. Uh, But is it also because we began shipping out our superheroes in greater force? And when we look at movies like The Winter Soldier and uh, The Avengers and, and these movies where uh, we can't use Nazis as the bad guys in World War II because we can't sell that internationally. And so mm-hmm. we have to switch this over to Hydra, which has been a force that's been around for forever. Um, heaven forbid we use AIM as as something as, as wicked as uh, as Hydra. But, um, you know, it's is is that a, is that a reason to to make this change? Yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely think that's part of the kind of Disney marketing strategy, just like. Um, you can't have the Chinese mm-hmm. be villains, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Red Dawn. Yeah, they it, had to go back and change everybody. Koreans because, you know, uh, the Age of Ultron just made a billion dollars. Right. And, you know, where did it make that? Not in America, right? It made a billion dollars before it came to America. So mm-hmm. America is, is a small film market. Mm-hmm. So you have this, and there's this this ongoing transformation. We talked about the hate monger. You know, the hate monger comes up in the uh, early 1960s in um, Avengers number uh, 29, I think it is, um, and it allows you to continue Hitler without having it be Hitler. And he's right. wearing a clan mask and he mm-hmm. has the H on yep. there for hate, but also for Hitler. And so, so that transformation again, allows you to continue this Nazi identification. So evil, but not have the Nazi imagery directly. And, and that's actually something with the hate monger. He represents an interesting thing that the way one of the things that that makes a superhero more American is to fight Nazis. Mm-hmm. So um, Black Panther in the 1970s fought the Klan, right? Fought fascists. Um, the American Panther, he fights the hate monger because the hate monger Klan, and he gets an American flag costume. Um, yep. The hate monger comes back in the Punisher as a uh, uh, you know he, he leads a chapter of the National Force. Um, in the American Southwest to, you know, fight uh, illegal immigration, kind of like the Minutemen. And the Punisher goes undercover. Um, and he, this is during when Captain America's dead, right. he actually gets a different costume that's this combination of the Punisher costume with the Death's Head. Mm-hmm. And he's got the star, and it looks kind of like an Ameri- Captain America costume. It actually says... Uh, he says, I'm Captain America. This is the Punisher talking. And it'll take a hell of a lot more 
than a bunch of cracker Nazi hicks like you to kill me. So (laughs) (laughs) fighting Nazis is the best way to assert Americanness. And I think it's because of the ways in which mythologically Nazis and the kind of idealized vision, the mythic vision we have of America work in exact oppositions, but it's also opposition in that hybridity versus purity, right? So it's structurally and mythically oppositional. Interesting. Fascinating. So you gave this presentation already. This was at uh, earlier this month, correct? Yeah, it was at at the... uh, uh, Missouri Historical Society, um, whenever they have a exhibit that comes through, they think, huh, can we do comics here? <laughs> because year, years ago, they had, uh, they had Images of Liberty, and the, and the woman who, uh, her name's Emily, she, she puts together the programming, and she, she thought, wait, Wonder Woman. And so she went online and was like, oh, wow, this guy would be great. I wonder, if, I wonder if we could bring him here. And then she, she stood up and went, oh, Oh, I can see his office from here. <laughs> She's just on the other side of Forest Park. And uh, so she had me back. Uh, I talked about Images of Liberty, and I talked – she had me for um, Treasure, mm-hmm. which was mostly about actual treasure, like pirate treasure and stuff. But I was able to talk about trash and a treasure because Superman number one had just oh, sold yeah. dollars. How do you go yep. from burning comics to a million dollars? Um, and and so whenever they have – they had me talk about the 1960s. Uh, whenever they have an, an exhibit that connects to um, anything related to comics and superheroes, they like to bring me in because uh, it, it draws a decent crowd. Yeah. So what was the reaction from everybody this, this go around? Oh, it was great. Actually, um, it was big. Uh, the we got a lot of people for one that was nice <laughs> and at the end I actually I actually am probably going to get another gig out of it because at the end someone came up I'd been talking about um, something out of my dissertation and, and this one audience member said you you've got to give a talk on that I was like okay and it turns out that they they have a uh, Missouri uh, uh, Adventurers Month um, oh cool and so because of the, the the talk I it's about Daniel Boone as the root American hero and kind of uh, what I call the heroic polarity, which is these oppositional characteristics that kind of cluster, um, uh, you know, Superman and Batman. You know, Superman is open, sky, powers, his mm-hmm. headquarters is at the top of the world. Batman, you know, moon, dark, underground, human. There's this whole series of, of, of oppositional characteristics that cluster around him. And, and so, because uh, it, it's rooted in Daniel Boone, and Daniel Boone gives us the Missouri the Missouri contact, but it's great to have an audience member insist that you give another talk. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Great. That's great. Well, I think, uh, we've learned a little bit more about why Nazis are good for superhero stories. Why they're fun to punch out. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And I where, blame Roy Thomas myself. There you go. Dr. Coogan, where can people find more about you or where you will be appearing next or anything like that? Uh, that's a good question. <laughs> I, I, I suck at social media. I should get better at it. I'm going to be at the uh, I'm going to be at Wizard World uh, this weekend. Okay. On uh, Saturday, I think around um, uh, a four this o'clock. Is, or so. This is Wizard World St. Louis, right? Wizard World St. Louis, okay. exactly. Uh, Danny Fingeroth organizes panels, and so um, I'm going to be on a panel about uh, nineteen. Let's see, it's 75 years ago, so 1940. And I'm also going to be on a panel about, oh, shit, um, 
We, I should have prepared this. Oh no, that's fine. No worries. People can find you. They can look in the program guide yes. if they're going out to the uh, to the Wizard World St. Louis this weekend. Uh, and then, of course, we will have you back next month to talk about another fascinating topic. Yeah, uh, and I'll be at uh, Comic Con, San Diego yep. Comic Con, as always yep. for the oh, wow. Comic Arts Conference. All right. Well, Doctor Coogan, thank you so much for your time, and listeners, thank you so much for uh, listening and sharing this episode with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, you can use the podcast posting page over at Majorspoilers.com. Uh, thank you to Rodrigo and Zach and Matthew and everybody that's involved in Major Spoilers. We're going to be back next week to talk Gronk. It's the comic, not the football player, because we know that you love comics. We do too. We will talk with you soon. Fat Dick's revision of a Superman. I could save a few bucks and stand around and read through the covers of the comics on the stand. But although every other page would be backwards, I suppose, I could still read the evens and the odds. Well, I don't know. Guess I haven't thought this all the way through. Plus, as soon as the comic book store guy knew, he kicked my butt out on the corner. What a major spoiler. What a major spoiler. If I was hulking green or gray, I could just bust through that brick wall, take their comic books away. But then the little meat would deal with all the tanks and bombs and guns. Have you ever tried to read a series with all that going on? Guess I need to rethink this plan. How would I back and board my comics with such huge hands? Guess I already told ya. What a major spoiler. What a major spoiler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What a major spoiler What a major spoiler If I'm Stark Raven rich like a man of iron I might not be surprised to find That I might actually have the heart cold To follow an entire storyline But would I really even need To read upon all those escapades I mean, who needs such distractions When your sister's such a babe But the downside is such a beast Being shot up in a fine Be in the Middle East With a King Santo and soldier what a major spoiler, what a major spoiler, yeah, 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 what a major spoiler, whoa, 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 whoa. what a major spoiler. This podcast is copyright 2015 by Major Spoilers Entertainment, LLC.